This is the case of Marion Barter, a mother, teacher, friend, missing for 22 years. You know, no sign that she was going to vanish, that's for sure. The bizarre circumstances surrounding her disappearance. I'm not sure if it was intentional or if there was something more foul afoot. If you could imagine a teacher coming straight from, say, Little House on the Prairie to the 80s, that was Marion Barter. Whether you find Marion Barter dead or alive, I honestly believe somebody has that key piece of information. And the relentless quest of a daughter to find her mum. Something had happened. Something has happened to make her leave. I am 100% sure, 100% sure that somebody knows something. The Lady Vanishes, Episode 9. Hi, I'm Alison Sandy. And I'm Brian Seymour. This week, we focus on England, the country where Marion made her last phone call to Sally. Because of the distance and the different time zones, plus the expense of getting there or making phone contact, it's been hard for Sally to make much progress with investigations in that part of the world. Also, there doesn't seem to have been much interaction between Australian and UK police that we know of anyway. However, thanks initially to social media, and especially since our podcast began, plenty of people in England have become aware of Sally's plight. There's now a band of sleuths trying to help, in particular, a woman named Christina. She doesn't want her surname revealed, but just this week, she managed to track down all of the flight numbers and airlines for flights from Japan to London on June 27, 28 and 29 in 1997. Remember, Marion had a stopover in Japan on her way to England. She left Australia on June 26th, and her letter, written on paper with a Japanese hotel logo, was posted from Tunbridge Wells in the UK on June the 30th. Christina's now on a mission to see if she can find out passenger lists from these flights. She's also done plenty of other vitally important checks. Good morning. Hi, Christina. It's Alison Sandy from The Seven Network. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me over there in West Sussex. Is that right? That's correct. That's where I'm based, yes. So first of all, can I ask you, how did you, well, what got you involved in this? How did you learn about um, Marion's story? Well, as I've just mentioned, I live in the county of Sussex, which is in the southeast of England. I was born here and I grew up here. Um, I saw Sally appear on a Facebook group. And that got my attention, firstly, because it is a really unusual and intriguing case. And then I saw the Sussex coast was mentioned, and I started to look into it a bit more. Then, of course, that has led on to listening to the podcast. And I thought if there was something I could do to look into some things here in the UK, even if it was just making some inquiries in the areas where Marion visited, then I was willing to do that. So, Christine, can you tell me what inquiries you've made at the moment and what you found out? Okay, well, I I started by looking into the postcard. So, on one of those postcards that Marion sent, 
from the UK in July 1997. Uh, the picture on that postcard was of a little market square in a, this small village called Alfreston, which is in East Sussex. Um, and that's about eight kilometres north of the coast. And it's a small village and it's in a picturesque setting. And apparently back in 1997, it was a busy village and there was lots happening there, not so much now. Um, and one of the shops in the picture is um, Sally's Craft Centre. Um, and this is where the postcard was purchased because on the back of the postcard, it has a gold sticker with the name of the shop. Um, Marion mentions in it what she'd written in the postcard that she was there in Alfriston. So there's every reason to believe she was there. So I've since found out the shop is no longer Sally's Craft Centre and it hasn't been that for some years. I've managed to get the name of the lady that owned the shop and I'd like to make contact with her. Maybe someone remembers Marion coming into the shop. So I've reached out to some other local Facebook groups in the Alfriston area um, and a local lady there has offered to put up a poster on the notice board in the village store and maybe get the story published in the parish magazine. So the word is getting out there that, that Marion was there. Um, so we're just continuing with that line of inquiry. And I also believe that you've got some um, contacts potentially in, the, in regard to the Orient Express. Yeah, so my husband, who has worked on the railway for some years, he has a contact at the company that does the booking for the Orient Express. So he's made contact with them to see if they have any booking records or any kind of records that go back to 1997. And he's waiting for a reply from them. That's another line of inquiry that's continuing at the moment. Absolutely, because if she was travelling with somebody particularly on the Orient Express, that would be very helpful for the investigation, um, even if she cancelled. Absolutely. And, and we know that, Marion mentioned that it seems that, you know, she had booked to go on the 15th of July. Um, it looks like that booking was confirmed, but that was either cancelled or postponed. So at least we have a date that we can focus on to see if there was a booking on that day. This is, I guess, the benefit of having such a wide reach with this when it is an international investigation. And um, certainly your help and, and that of others that have um, assisted us has just been invaluable. So I thank you so much for that. And I imagine that you're hoping that we'll get some answers soon. Sure, absolutely. And it, it's just a case of continuing to share Facebook post to make sure that the word's getting out there in the hope that you know someone recalls something or remembers meeting Marion or having a conversation with her. There are a few other lines of inquiry that I'm looking into. So um, looking into Tunbridge Wells because it does look like that's where Marion was staying um, and that is in the county of Kent, um, east of Sussex so they're next door to each other. Um, I've been emailing hotels in Tunbridge Wells to see if any of them have guest records going back to 1997. Um, and so much time has passed, um, quite a few of the hotels have changed ownership or management, and there aren't any records from that far back. Um, I am waiting to hear back from a few others. 
Um, it's the same case with car rental places because it seems that Marion rented a car. Usually due to data protection laws, there aren't any records from that far back. Um, so again, it's a case of you sharing information with the public in the hope that, that they recall something. And then also, we know that Marion was in Tonbridge, which is actually very close to Tunbridge Wells. So Tonbridge is spelt T-O-N, whereas Tunbridge is starts with T-U-N. They're very close to each other, only about 12 kilometres apart. Uh, but it looks like Marion visited a castle in Tonbridge, um, and the letter that she sent to Sally, uh, the postage stamp has the town Tonbridge on the stamp. So it really does look like she was there. I mean, that was dated the 30th of June. So it looks like she was in the Tonbridge area at the end of June. And then it looks like she's made her way further south, traveling around the southeast of England, further down towards the coast. Um, which then leads to another postcard that she sent from Brighton. So she visited a shop there, also another little tucked-out-of-the-way obscure shop. And again, that shop is no longer there, unfortunately. The owner of that shop has retired and moved to France around 2002, so it may be a bit more of a challenge to track her down. So she's bought the postcard at this shop in Brighton, but that has the posted stamp with the town Hastings on it, which is a bit further east of Brighton. So that's possibly another location that she was in during those first weeks of July. Wow. Christina, you're amazing. I'm so impressed. I mean, have, have you always been, you know, into, you know, murder mysteries, midsummer murders and things like that? Is, <laughs> I mean, I know this isn't necessarily a murder, but is this sort of just a, a, a real interest of yours? Um, I probably do watch too many <laughs> murder mysteries and, and crime shows, um, but I always just have had that investigative mind and part of the job that I used to do involved investigation, so I just think I have this natural interest in it and I'm kind of like a dog with a bone and I won't let it go. Well, I can tell you, Christina, that this network of sleuths that Sally has working, <laughs> including yourself, are going to solve this. I mean, we, 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 I feel like we're a bit of a conduit, but you guys are the ones that will solve it. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, what was your, your previous job? Well, like my husband, um, I used to work um, in the railway industry. I mean, this is some time ago before I had children, um, but I ended up doing a job um, which involved sort of investigated incidents on the railway, uh, incidents where, you know, trains were delayed or cancelled. Um, so I used to do a lot of investigation as part of that job. Um, but I probably ended up doing that because I had that natural interest in, in that kind of um, work. Um, but even since I've left the railway, I, I'm still very much like that and like looking into... Um, different things and getting to the bottom of things. Um, lastly, what's your gut feeling? I mean, Sally's, you know, I think her gut feeling's kind of foul play. What's your gut feeling with Marion? I do believe she was here, travelling around and enjoying herself. I think if anyone was to try to make it look like she had written those postcards, they would have had to gone to great lengths to obtain those postcards from obscure little shops tucked out of the way so I believe she was here and having a good time but 
after that, I really don't know. I think anything is, is possible. So, um, Susie Cooper, Sally mentioned that Marion became friends with a teacher called Susie Cooper who went to TSS school on an exchange, it seems, from the UK. Yeah, Marion right. had mentioned to her friend Angela that it was good that she now had a contact in the UK if she should decide to stay or work there. Uh, as Sally pointed out, that would be a strange thing to mention if you were planning on completely disappearing. So I'm looking into teachers here in the UK with that name and have started sending a few emails. I know that Sally was going to look into the archives at TSS to see if there's any information on her. So it'd be really good if she could be tracked down because she could hold some really important information. Maybe her full name was Suzanne or Susan, so I'd really like to narrow that down. But I think she would be a really important person to find. That leads me on to the Steiner School. So Sally had mentioned that yes. Marion may well have gone to the UK because of her interest in those schools. And there are two Steiner schools here in Sussex, one in Forest Row, which is just south of East Grinstead. And that is about 25 kilometres from Tunbridge Wells, so not far. And the other one is in Brighton on the coast, which is about that's about 28 kilometres from Alfriston. So they're, they're close to places that uh, Marion was visiting. And I have emailed both of those schools and asked if there's any record of Marion visiting or making inquiries into teaching there. Both of the schools have responded and said they've passed the information on to current staff and even some ex-members of staff who were there in 1997. Um, so I'm just waiting for some feedback um, from them. And I've now started to email other Steiner schools as well. Oh, that's great, Christine. Did you give them the name Flora Bella as well? I did. I did. Oh, I said that good. she may have been using those names. Um, and then... Just one other small line of inquiry was um, Scientology, mm. because I know on the podcast it's been mentioned a couple of times about Tunbridge Wells being the home of Scientology in the UK, mm. and I did look into that a bit more. And that isn't quite right, but it's not far off. The Scientology headquarters are in East Grinstead in West Sussex, and it has been there for some years. Um, and that's about 25 kilometres from Tunbridge Wells. Um, it seems that Scientology did have one of their small shops in the main town of Tunbridge Wells at some point, but that appears to be now closed. I'm not sure when that was. But the, the headquarters of Scientology definitely are in East Grinstead uh, and not Tunbridge Wells. Hmm. Well, that would be interesting. It's a hard one, a hard nut to crack um, Scientology with, you know, giving them kind of to re rely on potentially um, former Scientologists or something to tell us something. But it's it's good to know, like, the I guess the geography in relation to that um, and, and not rule it out as a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, trying to get information um, from Scientology would be very difficult. You would perhaps have to rely on um, people who have left Scientology, perhaps, um, that you're tracking people down who, who used to be part of it um, would probably be quite difficult. But uh, that highlights the importance of getting the information out there to as many people as possible. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to mention? I don't want to, <laughs> just in case. Just a small point that mm-hmm. Sally mentioned to me this mm-hmm. week was that Marion had said, I think in one of her letters, that she had put some of her luggage into left luggage at Heathrow um, before hiring the car and having more freedom to travel round. Um, so I think she had quite a bit of luggage um, and getting rid of that for a while enabled her some more freedom. Um, I'm just wondering if that luggage was ever picked up. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you would be able to find out that information now after so long, but it was just a thought that I had and I thought, did she ever pick it up? Good thought. Um, there, There is that possibility that her identity was stolen and it was somebody else that came back in and they wouldn't have known about that luggage if that was the case. Absolutely. So, all right. No, that's wonderful, Christina. Please keep in touch. Sure, absolutely. And I'll just, I'll keep digging and um, I'll keep notes of everything that I'm finding, the information that I'm getting. So, um, whatever I can do. And, true to her word, Christina keeps on chasing down any query or lead she has. In recent days, she's been in touch with British Telecom, the BT Archives Manager, asking about whether records still exist for a payphone in Tunbridge Wells that may have been used by Marion Barter on August 1st, 1997, to call her daughter in Australia. Dear Christina, I'm afraid payphone call records are not kept for any great length of time. I believe it's in the order of weeks or months, and certainly not years. I can state definitively that there are no such records from 1997 in existence. Sorry that we're unable to help. Best regards, James Elder, Archives Manager. A dead end this time, but you never know until you try. Anyone else who can help with inquiries in the UK, we'd love to hear from you. Another person who's been following the case closely and has been in touch with Sally is a former mental health nurse who asked to go by the name Rose, not her real name. She's retired now after doing the job for more than 40 years. I started uh, my training at uh, a psychiatric hospital in the mid-1960s. So I've had quite a lot of expertise and uh, qualifications in the area of mental health issues, uh, sort of like psychology, psychiatry. And I spent 46 years either in uh, either discipline, whether the clinical nursing or or, um, psychiatric nursing. What Rose has been considering is the possibility that Marion had perhaps had some sort of mental breakdown, which led to her unintentionally disconnecting from her family. I was just curious... If so, if uh, Marion could possibly have the psychological traits to actually walk away from her family and couldn't seriously come up with one single attribute or trait that I could think of that, that would make Marion actually walk away. She's a woman with a, a high conscience, a caring person. She just couldn't live with herself. That was my opinion. I have the liberty now that I've retired, whereas before I could be, I had to be non-judgmental, be objective, and keep my emotions out of a completely um, out of a situation. Um, there's only one uh, psychiatric condition that I could think that could happen to Marion. It is very, very rare, and 
and I have personally, in 40 odd years of nursing, or 45, I have not um, come across it myself. But that is a condition called disassociation. They've probably got a new name for it now. It's simply whereby a person uh, witnesses a traumatic event or had to live with a traumatic event, and because their nature is so uh, sensitive, they almost go into a state of amnesia, not in terms of not knowing who they are, where they are, but uh, also um, taking steps to almost become somebody else so they can leave that uh, situation behind. What happened? Press the door button. I think the electricity's off. Dissociation was explored as a theme in the 1965 movie Mirage, a film noir-type movie starring Gregory Peck and Diane Baker. Felicity, though, a small world. I heard you were back. I really am very glad to see you. Look, I'm sorry, but I haven't been away. And I'm afraid I've never seen you before either. Believe me, I'd remember. I find out more about dissociative identity disorder from the SANE Australia website. SANE is a charity which supports Australians affected by mental illness. The disorder was once known as multiple personality disorder, a very rare psychological condition whereby a person's identity splits into two or more distinct personality states. It's a coping mechanism enabling a person to disconnect from something stressful or traumatic, or to help them separate traumatic memories from everyday reality. It can be triggered by reminders of past events, stress, illness, or even mild incidents, such as a minor traffic accident. The person may not be aware of the other personalities and typically have dissociative amnesia, a fairly severe type of memory loss. Yet, they can generally still function at a high level. However, as Rose tells me, such episodes are not something that would go on for more than 20 years. No, no, because with these cases, and as I said, I haven't actually had ever had a patient with this condition, they do usually take something um, like a situation similar to what caused them to sort of completely walk away. It usually takes a, a similar sort of situation for them to wake up. And I don't think after 22 years that would be the case. But I think with Marion, she, as I said, a caring, loving person, she wouldn't be able to live with her conscience. As a person um, develops and matures, and especially in the older years, memories come back. And, you know, quite often with a lot of people, there's uh, like, oh, gee, I haven't spoken to my brother for years and it was my fault. And, you know, it's something that will prompt them to reconnect. Only the sociopathic type personality can uh, which has got no feelings, could just walk away and wipe their hands of it. Uh, and Marion is certainly not like that. What's your gut feeling with Marion? My gut feeling, she has met with foul play. Unless she's had a severe psychiatric breakdown, as I said, like a dissociation, and you could possibly speak to a psychiatrist or a psychologist on that, where you completely become another person because of a traumatic episode, and that usually does happen to very sensitive people. It's a possibility you can't just throw away. But I don't think in Marion's case, because the simple fact, once she got to England, 
ever writing. She did get to England. She was happy as Larry, writing postcards and letters and enjoying herself, and all of a sudden, cut straight off. Just like that, and then within six weeks or seven weeks, money was being whittled away from her bank account. One thing um, I said about um, dissociation is that, no, she wouldn't uh, come back like that. She'd just sort of go for a while and maybe 10 years or what have you. There is the theory of the cult. Um, yes, she would be susceptible to that because of her, her personal emotional disappointment. And I do know how cults work. That's one thing I did get taught. And yes, they're very, um, I think somebody would use the word evil, and I think I have to agree with that word. And manipulative. Oh, very manipulative. Um, they must know psychology back, <laughs> front to back, because uh, they use a lot of psychological tactics to ensnare their victims. And usually wealthy people as well, uh, highly educated, intelligent, wealthy people. And they actually break the person down, then build them up again. Given the traction that this has gotten now and, and the fact that it is on the worldwide stage, there's a very high likelihood that Sally will get the answer she, she wants. And I guess psychologically that would be great, but you know, Sally's obviously prepared for it, but I would imagine that would have some sort of impact as well. Oh, yes, on Sally it would. Uh, unless Marion was found and walked back in open arms, that would be the brilliant act outcome. However, my personal feeling is that it won't happen that way. As far as Sally goes, she's a very, very strong girl. I admire her. Psychologically on her, I think she would accept eventually whatever it may be. Short-term trauma on her, absolutely. But she would have peace of mind that she now has an answer. It's that not knowing is the thing that gnaws you away and eats away at you like cancer. Once she has that answer, whichever way it goes, I think Sally would deal with it ultimately very, uh, fairly well. I shouldn't say very well, fairly well. And I do feel as though with the support she has with her immediate family, I know that she's got a whole lot of people out there, obviously very caring, and, you know, deeply feel for Sally. She's got that sort of support. But I think uh, it, it's the not knowing with Sally. It is eating her away like cancer, um, as one can see. Um, and I think just to have, her, to have an answer. Now, the other thing is, on one of the Facebook uh, sites, somebody wrote a very um, poignant uh, comment with the fact, we don't need to know the answer if Sally felt we needn't know or can't be told. And I did answer back immediately, and I said, exactly, as long as Sally has peace of mind. As long as Sally is happy with whatever um, comes along, nobody needs to know the answer, and I think the majority of people would respect that. Yeah, absolutely. Come what may. Um, and obviously we're investigating on her part, and um, once we get that answer for her, she it's her choice as to whether she, she wants her followers and listeners to know or whether she'd rather keep it private. Sally does have a strong support network of loved ones and friends. The person who's been on this journey alongside her since it began is her husband, Chris. As you know, Chris knew Marion. He and Sally became engaged shortly before she went overseas. 
Chris has been Sally's sounding board and an even keel for 22 years. He's not one who likes to speak about the case publicly, but he agreed to be interviewed by our colleague, Paula Donovan. First impressions, you could tell that her house was always immaculate, probably to the point you didn't quite know where to sit. Uh, but she may always made you feel comfortable. She was obviously a very passionate woman about the job that she did teaching. She was always very polite. She was always very accommodating of her guests in her home. She was someone who, who came across as a, a caring individual. What has it been like to basically have spent your whole marriage to Sally with this mystery of what happened to her mother at times almost dominating your lives? It is what it is. There's, there's nothing you can change about it. At times it's challenging. At times it's upsetting for Sally. You know, it obviously causes stress for her, undue amounts of stress at times. Um, and it's challenging for, for, for the kids that, you know, they, they go to their grandparents' day at school or, or uh, you know, other events. You know, they've never had that, that uh, situation where they've had a, uh, a maternal grandmother like other kids have. I guess for them it's also that... Um, it's not been never been de- declared deceased. Uh, it, you know, it's the ongoing mystery. Do I or don't I? What do you think happened to her? I don't speculate. For me, um, you've got to base everything on fact. The problem is that there's not a great deal of facts. You know, even the uh, police report is uh, poor at best, to be honest, from what I've seen of it. You know, a five-year-old child with a box of crayons could probably keep a more accurate report. Does it sometimes make you angry that Marion going missing has been such a source of sadness for Sally? Um, yes and no. It's not so much anger because until there's factual evidence around what's actually happened to Marion, it'd be silly to bring an emotion like anger in. It's frustrating that there's a, a, an unsolved missing persons case that really the, I guess, the police services in general don't really want to know about. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of assumption, and uh, she doesn't fit specifically into uh, into one of their boxes on a report, so they leave her as uh, as found. It's ridiculous because she's not found. So perhaps if authorities had handled this better, then the room for speculation wouldn't have been as much. I agree. I think if they if they uh, handled it better right from the start instead of brushing it aside. Uh, and making assumptions that weren't based on fact. Uh, perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. You may recall Chris and Sally saw Marion with a stranger at a Gold Coast service station near a McDonald's restaurant not long before she left to go overseas. This is his memory of that evening. Sally was at a class at TAFE and Chris was at Marion's home. So Sally mentioned that she turned on you one day when you were helping her pack not long before she went overseas. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think turned on's probably a bit overdramatic, but um, I was round there, I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday evening. Sally was at TAFE and uh, Marion had sold the house and I was round there helping her pack. Um I specifically remember I was sitting in the, in, on the lounge room floor and I was packing up the TV cabinet. And she walked out and said, what's the time? I told her what the time was and she said, right, just drop everything. I need you to go now. It was a little bit weird, a little bit out of character. But I said, look, I'll just finish packing this box. 
And she went, no, just leave it all there and, and, and go. I need you to go right now. So I packed up and I, uh, I left. I went and got Sally from TAFE. After that, I understand that you and Sally then went to McDonald's to have something to eat. Yes, we did. We, 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 I picked Sally up from TAFE. It was quite late, so yeah, a bit hungry. We just thought we'd, we'd drop in there to Bundle Road, actually it was. It was a service station attached to the McDonald's. We dropped in there and, uh, yeah, at the time I saw, saw Marion pull up at the service station to obviously fill a car with fuel. I said to Sally, there's your, there's your mother. Yeah, Sally sort of got her attention and she, she jumped back in the car and, and uh, sped away, really, uh, the wrong way, uh, through the drive-thru, unfortunately for her. But, yeah, there was, a, uh, there was somebody in the car with her who looked to be male and uh, you know, quite a, a, a tall gentleman at that. Do you remember any other, anything else distinctive about him at all? No, I mean, not really. I mean, you're looking out a window into a, a lit service station forecourt, into a dark car, you don't, you, know, you don't really get the detail of who that might have been. The silhouette of him through the window. He was obviously a, a, a big person. And she moved quickly, did she, without even actually putting petrol into the car? And that's my recollection, yes. We're still trying to find out who that mysterious tall man was. Marion brushed aside Sally's questions in the days after the incident. Perhaps it was just an acquaintance, taking her out for a drink. Though, why the need for such secrecy? Marion said she met him at the local arts centre. That may or may not have been true. However, it would be interesting to hear from someone who worked at the Gold Coast Arts Centre in 1997 and was familiar with people who regularly visited. It seems unlikely that the mysterious man was Greg Edwards, the groundsman from TSS, whom Marion had been out with a few times, because he wasn't a secret. Sally had met him and would likely have recognised him. But could it have been someone else Marion worked with? Could it have been the father, uncle or grandfather of one of her students? Perhaps the pilot one of Marion's former colleagues remembers, the one that Marion had apparently been seeing. Sally has managed to get her hands on some of Marion's class lists from TSS and we are trying to track down that pilot. Or was the mysterious stranger someone who'd secretly swept Marion off her feet? lavished her with attention and affection, promised to help her escape the turmoil of her life, take her on an adventure and establish a whole new life. Maybe that person promised her the world and then took her world away from her. Whatever the case, if there's someone out there who has any information about that mysterious tall man in the car, we'd love to hear from you. Another thing we're chasing is documents relating to the theft of Marion's wallet from her Gold Coast home. This happened about a year before she suddenly quit her job and upended her life. She reported the crime to Queensland Police Service, or QPS. Late last year, on November 19, 2018, Sally applied to QPS under Right to Information, RTI laws, 
for the report, which was made by Marion after her wallet was stolen. Three months later, on February 8, 2019, QPS neither confirmed nor denied those documents existed. But the matter was then referred to the Queensland Office of the Information Commissioner for external review. On April 12, 2019, Assistant Information Commissioner Suzette Jeffries replied to Sally's application. Here's an excerpt of what she said. I acknowledge that the neither confirm nor deny provisions of the Right to Information Act 2009, Section 55, are not straightforward. This is exacerbated by the fact that when an agency neither confirms nor denies the existence of documents requested, we are constrained in what we can say to applicants. I will, however, endeavour to explain more fully how the provision works so that this might assist you in identifying any relevant information that you may want us to take into account, informing a view as to whether QPS can rely on this provision. I do acknowledge the very difficult circumstances that have led you to requesting information about your mother and empathise with your desire to be able to contact your mother or indeed understand what has happened to her. These circumstances, including that you are a child of a missing person about whom you are seeking information, can operate to favour discussion disclosure of information. On the other hand, there is a strong public interest in ensuring that government agencies protect individuals' personal information so that their privacy is not compromised. This consideration usually weighs very heavily against disclosure. As I've said, I don't know whether these documents exist, but if we assume that they do, they comprise your mother's personal information. In the absence of strong public interest considerations favouring release of these types of documents to someone other than your mother, the requested documents would therefore comprise a type of prescribed information for the purposes of Section 55 of the RTI Act. Furthermore, if an individual has contact with police in a private capacity, this in itself is sensitive information which they would reasonably expect not to be disclosed to other people under a general information scheme, such as the RTI Act. Ms Jeffries goes on to request more information from Sally, specifically about the stolen wallet and its relevance to the circumstances of her mother's status as a missing person. She says this may then enable her to consider whether there are additional public interest considerations that might operate in this case. Sally wrote this in response. Hi Suzette, I'm writing with regards to the below request for written information as to how I know about my mother's wallet being stolen. My mum told me that she had left her basket on the front seat of her car one morning before going to school when she realised she'd left something inside. The car was parked in her carport in Marinda Court, Ashmore, and she left the driver's door open. She rang back into the house to grab it, and when she got to school, the Southport school, she realised her wallet was missing and called the police to report it stolen. She then showed me a while later a photo police had given her of the lady who was using her credit card at a surface station on the Gold Coast, who strangely looked very much alike my mum, just younger. She had the same dark hair and was wearing sunglasses from memory. As my mum's disappeared shortly after this, in 1997, and her name was changed under what we believe to be very odd circumstances, I wish to gain more information regarding this to help me find my mother. I appreciate your assistance regarding this. 
we are still awaiting a response. Meanwhile, in recent weeks, Sally has also applied via email to the New South Wales coroner seeking an inquest for her mother. Good afternoon, coroner. My name is Sally Layden and I am writing to you today applying for a coronial inquest in relation to my mother, Marion Barter, who has now been missing without a trace for 22 years. Sally goes on to detail the particulars of the case, Marion's unhappiness at TSS, the dates of her resignation, her departure for England, the postcard sent home, the missing money and the name change. I've also created a timeline of events to assist us since she went missing in 1997 and have attached this for your perusal. She expresses disappointment with New South Wales Police and advises of the documents she can provide. I am happy to provide further information you require in order to proceed with the inquest. Before explaining her greatest fear. Being that the events leading up to her disappearance were so out of character and the fact that absolutely no one can find my mum, not the New South Wales Police Force, AFP, nor the Salvation Army Family Tracing Service can find her, I'm devastatingly concerned that she may have met with foul play. Sally then signs off with a plea. If you could please acknowledge receipt of this email and advise how long I can expect to hear back from you with an answer, thanking you in anticipation. There's been no response yet. Another thing we've determined is that, other than Florabella Remichel, there is no record of a further name change for Marion through births, deaths and marriages. That doesn't mean she hasn't assumed another identity, it just means she hasn't done so officially. Also, when her passport expired in 2007, it has never been reissued in any name. Sally has lost count of the emails and letters she's written over the years to authorities and agencies seeking help, advice or information. She spent numerous hours waiting on phone lines, explaining her story time and again to everyone from parents of Marion's former students to tax office officials. While it has consumed her, she's tried not to let it affect her everyday relationships. One of Sally's best friends is Cassidy Bryant. They've known each other for 13 years, but in the beginning, Cassidy knew very little about Marion. Um, I think it's just one of those things as you're becoming friends with people, you talk about your history and, you know, uh, she had three children. I had just had my first and I think probably Mother's Day was coming up and we were just chatting about what we were doing and all of that kind of stuff. And then she said, oh, I don't see my mum for Mother's Day or something similar to that. And I was like, well, that's an odd thing to say. Okay, cool. Kind of left it a bit. And then we went away, I think, a bit later that year. And again, we were talking about mothers and because we were away for a friend's mum's birthday and I was like, so tell me the story with your mum, because across the year she hadn't really said much, and she said, my mum's a missing person. I was like, oh, all right. It's like, is that a recent thing? And she said, oh, she went missing in 97 and started telling me the story. And I don't think she actually told me the full story because um, it is quite an unbelievable sort of story. And I went away going, "That's, that's really tough and a lot to process. The story only became real for Cassidy when Sally asked for her company when she met with Detective Gary Sheehan at Byron Bay for the very first time. 
about 10 years ago. Yes, yes. So she received a phone call from Gary and she said, oh, there's a, she said to me, a, a new detective has taken over the case and they want me to come down to Byron. Are you free to come down? And I went, oh, yeah, sure. How, how odd. But yeah, I can come with you if you like. Um, and I don't think I actually fully understood what we were doing. Um, for some reason, it didn't click when she said, I've got to go and meet with detective and we need to tell the story again and um, go through all of that. Yeah, it was very surreal, I think, for a long time for me because obviously I hadn't lived it with her and hadn't experienced it. I was coming in 10 years after the fact, I guess. Um, yeah, so I think that was my first introduction was just a, a fairly soft opening, if you will, of, yeah, I don't really see my mum. Okay, there's obviously a story behind that, but didn't push it. So, yeah, that would be my introduction to the Marion Barter story, I suppose. This is the case of but now the story has been heard millions of times around the world. Cassidy is hopeful for Sally's sake. I think getting this world stage and having a spotlight on this around the globe, I think that's going to go a long way to finding either who took her or somebody recognising her going, I think you need to call your daughter. I know this is strange, but, um, yeah, I think something will come of it at some point. Well, I'm 17 now. And there's another generation coming to understand the weight that Sally has shouldered for years. Her daughter, Ella. I'm really quite proud of her for doing this. Like, this is a very big thing to do and a very big step for her to take in order to try and find her and find out what happened and get some answers for it. I know that I would do the same thing for her. If something ever happened to my mum, I would 150% do the same thing. But I'm really proud of her for, you know, being brave enough to step up and put her story out there and put her face out there. And I feel like at the moment it's everywhere. Everywhere I turn, I have people coming up to me going, oh, my God, I didn't know this about you. And I didn't know that this was your story. And I have friends messaging me going, oh, my gosh, I'm so shocked. I didn't know this about you ever. Um, So I'm really proud that she's stepping out there and she's really working hard to get the story out there to try and find some answers. Yeah, I think that's a really brave thing of her to do and I really respect that. Yeah, if roles were reversed and I was in that situation and something had happened to me, I would want, you know, my family to be looking for me and making an effort to find me to make sure I'm okay. Um, Because you can't just, you can't assume that stuff. You can't just assume that she's okay, yeah. Because I don't think she is personally um yeah with everything that I know I don't think she is Ella is the oldest of Sally's children she's almost 18 and in her first year at university studying engineering and IT she's never known a life with Marion in it I wouldn't say there's you know one specific point in time that I went oh, my grandmother's missing and I don't know where she is. I think mum and dad had always kind of slowly introduced it, the idea to me um, from being really little as I as I grew up. So it wasn't so much of a shock once I did kind of learn about it and fully understand what was going on and what that meant and what it meant to be a missing person. Um, so for me, as kind of a little kid, it was it was never really a big deal to me that she was missing. It was just, that was normal to me because I'd never really known anything other than that. I just had grown up knowing that. Um, but I think as I've 
you know, as I've become older, um, especially in the last two or three years, it's really hit me how big of a deal it is that she's a missing person and we don't know what happened to her. Um, so, yeah, I would say I've definitely kind of known for a long time but haven't known until recently how big of a deal that is. For someone that I've never met, she has had quite a big impact on my life, but I like to think of it as a good one because... You know, she obviously isn't here and she isn't around and my uncle isn't around and my grandfather lives in the Blue Mountains. My mum doesn't really have a lot of family outside of our immediate family right here to call on or to ask for help or to go and see or to have around. So my mum and I are very, very close as a result of that, which is really nice. Um, I can, I feel like I can tell her everything, which I know a lot of people don't feel like they can tell their parents everything, especially when they're my age. Um, so I think it's really nice that I do have that relationship with her. And I think if anything, at least that's one good thing that's come out of this whole scenario is that, yeah, it's definitely brought my mum and I and even our entire family a lot closer than most families are, I would say. Yeah. Like her mum, Ella believes Marion has met with foul play. I do think that, you know, someone's manipulated her or taken advantage of her or something along the lines of that kind of scenario and that's what's happened to her, for sure. Yeah. It does make me angry sometimes. I think if something bad has happened to her and she, you know, has... How do I want to word this? I do think if, you know, something bad has happened to her that was out of her control and that's the reason that she's missing and that no one knows where she is, I would never hold that against her and go, that's that's all your fault, that this, that this has happened, you know, you're the one responsible person for this um, because I know that that's out of her control. But I think, I think if I found out that she had just gone off with someone and wanted to start a new life and didn't, want to tell the people who loved her and who cared about her. I don't know if it would make me angry, but it would make me sad that she did that and sad that she just didn't consider how much she was hurting the people that she left behind. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird situation to be in, I think. Um, but, yeah, it just makes me sad more than angry. How do you handle when people do say, I didn't know this was part of your story, I didn't know that, or messaging you or approaching you about yeah. your grandmother's case? I guess for me it's never really been something I've talked about and it's not something that I'm ashamed of, that I try and hide. I've noticed, particularly since I've started uni, because this stuff has been coming out, I've been a lot more open with talking to people about it and going, yeah, this is this is my grandmother's story, you know, this is my mum's story, this is my story. It's really quite in, an interesting one and I really hope that we find some answers soon. Um, so I'm a lot more open about talking about it now just because before I never did because I didn't want to be that person to kind of put a downer on the situation or, you know, bring down the mood, I guess, by pulling out a really heavy story like that. So in primary school and high school and with all my friends there, I, it just never felt like something that came up or yeah the time never seemed right to speak about it yeah now a bit more it's for sure coming out a little bit more and I'm a lot more comfortable with talking to people about it a lot more open to talking to people about it um what she would love is a result some sort of finality once and for all I would be 
really quite sad and disappointed if, you know, my mum did go through all of this and went through all the effort and, you know, through all the emotions of doing this. Um, and I'd be quite sad if we went through all of this and she put in so much work to not find anything out. So yeah, I just, I do hope that this does bring some answers so that we can finally put the whole thing to rest, I guess, yeah. Monsieur, 47 ans, célibataire. Next time, an unusual personal ad in a 1990s newspaper, written in French, a man looking for love. Our quest for answers takes us overseas. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the airport of Luxembourg. Please remain seated until the first seatbelt signs have been switched off. If you knew Marion or have any information about her or her whereabouts, we'd love to hear from you. Our website is 7news.com.au forward slash the lady vanishes, where you can also email us. Oh, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. Please rate and review our series. It helps new listeners find us. Presenter and executive producer, Alison Sandy. Presenter and investigative journalist, Brian Seymour. Producer and writer, Sally Eels. Sound design, Mark Wright. Transcripts, Charlie Daly-Watkins and Alice Sinclair. Graphics, Jason Blandford. This is a 7 News production.